0: It is indeed, again, a privilege and pleasure we have tonight to come together as we are even at this moment. Isn't it true the psalmist declared that this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, Psalm 118, verse 24. And thus to be able to gather together with health and the disposition of other matters in life, what a true blessing and privilege indeed it is. As again is usually the case, we're blessed with visitors and certainly we're appreciative and happy for your attendance and presence and for a regular membership as well. Just a joyful opportunity to come together. We might continue it tonight if, if we've already made those opportunities and plans to think about one thing that I failed to mention for, for those making the announcements. We should remember that the next weekend will be the time for the moving the clock back an hour. So as we make ready for that next Sunday morning, let's certainly make sure to fix our clocks appropriately so that things will be right on the timing of all matters related to the services and other activities that will take place next Sunday. But with that said, tonight in our lesson, we'll continue our series of studies on the book of Revelation. We have, throughout the last several weeks, taken a careful and interesting look at that book, and at this point in time, we've arrived at the 18th chapter, It has some 24 verses within that chapter, and as we discuss the various parts of it this evening, we will at one juncture or another read the the thoroughness of that chapter. If I might make a few opening comments that will set the stage for where we shall be this evening, we might do well to recall that throughout our study of Revelation, we have often been reminded that one particular passage or text is often commentated on by other passages or texts and by looking at the appearance in various ways in the various places within the book, we have been encouraged to see more thoroughly that which is being taught. One example was the 144,000 we first encountered in Revelation 7. When we first met that number, we quickly arrived at an impressive conclusion to what it represented. But then, when we also considered the description of chapter 14 of that same number, we were certainly much clearer, as well as edified even more thoroughly by our study of that number. That was just one example of this number that appeared more than once with great significance. This evening, we shall see that the idea before us is the fall of Babylon. That is, in fact, the central theme of the entirety of chapter 18, However, that idea was mentioned previously. In fact, it was the thrust of Revelation 14.8. As we read that text then, we were certainly led to appreciate the greatness and thoroughness of that destruction and absolutely total at that of Babylon. For after all, then an angel was seen flying as John appreciated the flight of that angel. And the angel cried, the fall of Babylon, the fall of Babylon, And the reason given was because of the fornication of the the wrath of her dealings and the corruption to be associated with it. Tonight, as we come to chapter 18, we shall see that this chapter is an expansion of, an elaboration of, a more thorough description of all the things that we saw in that one verse earlier. In essence, these are all the details that went along with the cry of that angel in Revelation 14.8. With that in mind, we should remember that between then and now, that is, in chapters 15, 16, and 17, we did see the faithful singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, standing beside that glassy sea, almost ready to participate in the greatness of the reward waiting them. That was chapter 15. In chapter 16, we saw the vials, and seven of them in number, poured out upon those who were not the children of God. And then in chapter 18, the judgment of God on the harlot and the scarlet-colored beast. Seeing all of them reminds us of the absolute nature of the truth of God's judgment. And in this chapter, that wrath shall be poured out upon none other than, in this case, Babylon itself. If you would, then, let us turn to the first three verses of that chapter. And let's read them. For these are in many ways an introduction or an announcement to the fullness of this chapter. Revelation 18, verses 1, 2, and 3. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird." For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. In verse 1, John again is privileged to see this angel whose origin is again heaven. But this is an angel who obviously has great authority and great power. And in fact, the American Standard Rendering and the Greek word identifies greatness of authority. In other words, God had given to this angel tremendous authority for the declaration that this angel was making. And note carefully with me the cry of the angel. As it used, or as he used, the authority given to him by God, he cried, Babylon is fallen is fallen. The decree and proclamation of this angel is absolutely to the point that directly associates to the fall of Babylon. And amazingly enough, not only the mere sentence statement, but notice as verse 2 closes, this place Babylon is become the habitation of devils. And in addition, the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. We can notice immediately that, again, a rather amazing figurative and symbolic set of languages is employed. We shall return in a moment to make some observations about the fullness of that. But one final thought in verse 3, the reason for Babylon's destruction is again listed. And it's verbatim the same language from Revelation 14.8. Notice again the uniformity of God and His presence. It's not a different message. With regard to Babylon's destruction, it is the same reason. And again, it's the wine of the wrath of her fornication. As that verse closes, we do note that many have been made rich through or by her in terms of the great delicacies to be seen therein. With some of those thoughts and ideas presented, may I first remind each of us as we use the word Babylon In the book of Revelation, often those terms that are employed have great significance. And for those first century listeners and hearers to this book, that very word conjured up in their mind a world of Old Testament significance. And if we are to appreciate the fullness of the book, it should, at least to us, bring a similar array of meanings. Babylon was that captor of God's people. In the Old Testament, once the children of Esther came forth from Egyptian captivity, for a while, of course, they had the privilege of residing in that blessed and wonderful land, that land that flowed with milk and honey. However, her residence and stay in that land often was interrupted by various peoples who came and made inroads into that area. One could list the Philistines, the Midianites, and a host of others from the book of Judges. But might we recall that once David usurped the throne or came to the point of being king, having been so anointed by Samuel, immediately Israel enjoyed a rather powerful and pristine time. Later, however, as she deviated from God's will, God raised up nations and allowed them to conquer and to capture His own people. On the one hand was Assyria, who took the northern kingdom into captivity. But on the other hand was Babylon, who took God's own people, the southern kingdoms of Benjamin and Judah, into the captivity there in Babylon. In fact, that carries us through a significant portion of Old Testament history. Many of the minor prophets labored either shortly before or during the time of the Babylonian captivity. And thus, when one mentions Babylon, one thinks of an adversary to God's people, an entity, a power of sufficient strength that is able to, in fact, not only make minor damage to, but has authority and power to greatly trouble the people of God. Wasn't that so in the first century era when the ruling empire of Rome had made such difficulty for the people of God, putting them in prison, putting them to death, making their life exceedingly difficult? As one contemplates the nature of this Babylon Might we remember in terms of that description, many times in the Old Testament, Babylon was the subject of prophecy. And it was not, at least in most instances, noteworthy prophecy in terms of being positive. God would pronounce doom upon Babylon because of her faithlessness, because of her oppression of His people. It is true that he raised up Babylon. And in the book of Habakkuk, he stated that they're going to be my rod of instrument to in fact correct my own people. But more often than not, God's judgment was prophesied to fall upon Babylon. And a few passages that I've listed for consideration somewhat briefly would be these. In Isaiah the 47th chapter, Almost the entirety of that chapter is God's judgment upon Babylon because she is not a people who follows His way. Or one could mention Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 where it again in those chapters in a very graphic and dramatic language God pronounces through the noble prophet His judgment upon Babylon because she is a hasty and bitter and wicked nation. As we thus see the usage of the word Babylon in the book of Revelation, may we quickly appreciate that the significance is exceedingly similar. This is again a nation that's the enemy of God's people. It is descriptive of a group of individuals, a nation, a people, who shall be judged by none other than the God of heaven. And Revelation 18 is the key text that identifies God's judgment in terms of her fall. Well, that said... Consider some observations of the opening three verses. First, we notice that there was a decree from heaven. This judgment was not an arbitrary one from some council or decision of men, this was from God Himself. As one makes note of that judgment, isn't it amazing that in verse 1 we see a lightening of the earth? That reminds us of the 43rd chapter of Ezekiel, where there we remember that the lightening of that particular place went hand in hand with the revelation of God. When God reveals, it does bring forth light, doesn't it? For God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, verse 5. Isn't it still the case that, speaking of God's Word, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? Psalm 119, verse 105 and thus the lightening to take place there symbolically reminds us of God's revelation and that it does bring light. But the next two verses quickly remind us that this destruction of Babylon would in fact be total, and it would be desolate. To our mind again may come well the 26th chapter of Ezekiel, where in very similar language to this, God's judgment upon Tyre is listed. And so complete was that judgment to be that though that city at the time that Ezekiel penned that was very populous and noble and rather famous, God said the time is coming that there will be nothing here but people casting nets. There will be nobody even living here. It will be a place where animals will find holes in the ground to reside and dwell. Here we notice that a very similar idea is mentioned about Babylon. A hold of every foul spirit and what's more, a cage of every hateful and unclean bird. That symbolic description reminds us that God's decree is final in this point. Doesn't that help us see that when the day of judgment does come, to in fact bring or consider that in light of our own personal situation, there will be no opportune time for a court of appeals following the day of judgment. God's decree on that noble and grand day will be the final decree for all eternity. Nowhere in Scripture do we have a hint or even a slight one that he will grant a second or third or fourth opportunity. The final verdict will be in. All the matters will have been considered. As we see very powerfully in this text, notice verse number 3, many who have been in support of Babylon, they may well have financially been made rich thereby. But that doesn't mean, as we'll see later in the chapter, that they too will find themselves under judgment as well. And that does hasten us in a way to verses 4 and 5. Would you consider those verses with me? Let's read verses 4 and 5 and tie those to the ones we've just considered. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached into heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. What an amazing and oh so powerful text. We noticed in verse 3 in particular, note and mention made about the fact some here having benefited physically or personally by virtue of Babylon, but here a rather powerful and immediate warning. Come out of her, my people. Notice this other angel decrees, You must separate yourself from this one, for she is about to receive of the fullness of the wrath of God's plagues, and you do not want to be participants in them. You do not want to receive them. Did we not notice in the pouring out of the seven vials in chapter 16 that in fact those to receive those were the very ones who were not of God's people. For his people, having their foreheads sealed, were in fact preserved from them. Here might we appreciate, come out of her, my people. We do see something rather dramatic, do we not? And what a set of observations it makes. I've noted on that sheet before you, several things could very quickly be said, one of which is this, that though you and I may well, quote, live in Babylon, we must not be of it. I've taken that idea from the very heart and core of our Savior's intercessory prayer of John 17, where in fact those who lived on this earth were not to be of it, in the sense that their focus and their attention was to be elsewhere. You and I may live in this world, but we mustn't be of it. In the same way, these who were God's people who perhaps resided or dwelled in that empire of Rome, They must not bow the knee to Caesar and worship him. They must not do so to buy and sell and get gain. They must not forfeit their truth in Christianity just to make peace with the Roman Caesar. We notice that as we have said all of that, it reminds us that we can find ourselves in similar situations even today. How tempting it is to be materialistic, to do what the world encourages because after all, the world wants us to do what it does. And as it entices us to do those things, it is Satan that's behind it. May we also come out of her. Was it not Paul who proclaimed to those in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 14, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what concord hath righteousness with unrighteousness? As he makes several listings in that text... It is a self-evident point that we too must come out and be separate, saith the Lord, to note verse 17 of that chapter. Might we also notice the fact in listing all of these, you and I must be sanctified just as these people under discussion here were to have been. We cannot thus do those things that the world encourages and expect God to be pleased with it. For after all, whosoever is a friend of the world... He is the enemy of God, James 4 verse 4. These points in verses 4 and 5 have reminded us that again the sins that had taken place there had even made note, had been made note of in heaven. God was aware of what they were doing. In Ezekiel 8 verse 12, there were those who said, God seeth not, oh how foolish they were. God knew everything they were doing and in fact directly said that though they may think I don't, I in fact have and will and will punish when it's proper for that to be said. So far the destruction to be seen has only led us after verse 5 to appreciate what's about to come. For if God has warned that his people should come out from among them that they be not partakers, we can only guess the terribleness that shall fall off. Let's turn then and begin reading in verse number 6 and read verses 6, 7, and 8. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. In the reading of verses 6 through 8, we have so noticed that very powerfully, the one to whom the speaking is done has changed. In verses 4 and 5, here it was speaking to those who in fact were to be made note to God's people to come out from among them. Here, the speaking is to those that would be the ones bringing destruction on this Babylon. The ones who would be God's ministers to bring destruction. God now addresses them and says, Reward her even as she rewarded you. Now, it might be of sufficient power to note That that word you that appears in the King James is not in the original Greek. In essence, the reading is as follows. Reward her even as she rewarded. That is, in the same way that she doled out harshness and punishments upon those that she was able to punish, let it be brought back on her. Let that punishment be returned double, in fact, to her. It is amazing to notice as the verse ends that the cup which she has filled was to be filled in fact to her yet again. The amazing point to notice then that this destruction that God has in store reminds us of the fullness and power that this destruction was to be in accordance to what she had done. Many lessons may well be mentioned even in that light and even in that vein. And to do so in fact would quickly lead us to say that the torment that was to be brought upon her, was to be in line with the arrogance and pride that she had exhibited. Isn't it true that so often as the Bible indicates and even exhibits pride on the part of its characters, we so often have the amazing fact of seeing that that pride can lift one up to the very point of falling. How often we're reminded that Isaiah did so in Second Chronicles 26... We see Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Oh, how quick one one might fall when one allows oneself to be so blinded by arrogance and by pride. On this occasion, that's exactly what had happened. And it would appear that the Holy Spirit chose to borrow significantly from the language of Isaiah 47. For in fact, verses 7 through 9 appear practically verbatim in the text before us. To make note of that fact, we should remember that in Isaiah 47, the thought was again the character of God's judgment on the nature of Babylon. And here the quotation relates to the same wording as we consider some observations. First, might we note the certainty of God's judgment. God did not say... You might want to reward them. He didn't say if you feel like it or if the time becomes right. He said you reward her double for the way she has treated others. The certainty and the absolute rightness of God's judgment. Some of those texts that remind us of that judgment that we shall consider and face. Oh, how the greatness to be seen in Galatians 6 verses 7 and 8. Reminding us there that be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. It is a rather interesting point to see then that you and I too will meet the fullness and the certainty of God's judgment. Do we not want to be on the right side on the day that God judges? Do we not want to be numbered among those on the right For we can imagine the fierceness of those on the left. How anxious they shall be when they realize that things are not in proper order. That they have died unprepared. Or that the Savior has returned and they are unprepared. Notice that here Babylon's judgment has come. Perhaps yet another remark would be these. For in fact verses 9 through 20 set the stage for, in fact, I suppose, the fullness. Three cries that illustrate the greatness and the absolute totality of this destruction. I would ask you to read to me verses 9 through 20 of Revelation 18. "...and the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning." standing afar off with the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all thy in wood and all manner vessels of ivory, And all manner vessels of most precious wood and of brass, and iron and marble, and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat, and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusteth after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear for torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. <clears throat> for in one hour so great riches has come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads, and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich, all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour is she made desolate. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. We note three cries are listed. The first, if we return back to verse number 9, is from the kings of the earth. It is a fact of history that there were many kings of the earth who in fact partnered in fellowship closely with the empire of Rome. They desired to make fellowship and in fact alliances with Rome For Rome had many military offerings to make and Rome also had many advantages to offer to those places in commerce, in trade. We notice that though here beginning in verse number 9, these kings that partnered with her in a physical way, certainly when Rome fell, they also met a greatness of terror as well. But it would seem that there is a deeper meaning to much of this than that. For after all, much of that, of course, though that physically happened, carries ideas from us from the discussion of those two beasts in Revelation 13. What was that sea beast? What was that land beast? We rather interestingly identified both of them, and they had an interesting role to play relative to the nature of false religion that, of course, opposed the character of God, that eminently was seen in the nature of that falseness that began in the Roman Empire but of course has spread the world over ever since the nature of that false religion reminds us that yet one more time those who make alliance with falseness those who make bartering with false religion shall one day pay the price for that for God only has respect for the truth that he has authored he has respect for that truth that his Holy Spirit has sent forth. May we notice in this opening statement, there's great doom awaiting those, the circumstances of those who've made alliances with that which is false. Specifically, again, notice verse 10 with me. These kings are stated to have been standing afar off and lamenting over the character of this fallen city. However, what about those who have bought into false religion through the nature of that second beast, the sea beast? Isn't it fair to say that in light of that, there too shall come a time when they will be amazed at how that that very thing on which they've based the fullness of their hopes will crumble before their very eyes. If not before, it shall certainly happen at the day of judgment. And on the day that that crumbling falls, how too they shall lament over the very thing crumbling on which they've based the entirety of their eternal hopes. It's sad to consider that, but that nonetheless is that which is presented before us. In the very last part of verse 10, For in one hour is thy judgment come. We see the swiftness of God's judgment, literally as roll Rome fell. But oh, how swiftly it shall come again on that day of judgment in the twinkling of an eye. Those that are alive will be changed. There shall be no opportunity to barter and make arrangements then. For is it not told to us in Hebrews nine twenty 27, that it is his appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. But that was only the first cry. What about the one listed beginning in verse number 11? The merchants of the earth also shall cry. It's fair to say as one considers that yet again, there were the merchants of that first century era who longed to make alliances and allegiance with Rome. In our study of Acts, not many Wednesdays back, we noted especially in chapters 27 and 28 that when Paul approached Rome on that Appian Way, there were many who had set up stations and places to buy and sell on that Appian Way so that they could in fact make money off the greatness of Rome's population, selling bread to them, selling other things of interest to them, Notice again, in verses 12 and 13, many things are listed, literally, that were sold in Rome and to Rome. May we notice one interesting observation in that. First, there's thian wood. That's a kind of wood that might be a bit unfamiliar to you and me. What kind of wood is thian? We're familiar with oak and cedar and hickory and other kinds of wood. Thyan wood was an exceedingly precious kind of wood imported into Rome from northern Africa. It had a beautifully golden red color. It was prized possession to construct furniture in the houses of those that were wealthy. Note also at the end of verse 13, the souls of men were also listed in slave trade and other things. But may I suggest, you and I can of course read in that an amazing thing. There will be a great danger awaiting for all who have bartered in the souls of men religiously as well. Those who've had the audacity to teach things that are false and men who have believed and followed that shall walk down the pathway also to destruction. These merchants thus are said to be lamenting over the city in verse number 15 and following, weeping and wailing because of their physical loss. But shall it not also be When that great day of judgment arrives, things yet future from our perspective now, we shall also see that there will be great lamenting on that day. Jesus pictures such, does he not, in several of the parables that he taught. For instance, in Matthew chapter 25, the greatness of the weeping and wailing, when there are those cast into outer darkness, in Matthew 25, verses 29 and 30. We also notice in verse 16, the great city was decked, beautifully oh she had as it were gold and pearls and precious stones rome was a city of extravagance there were those who lived deliciously as the king james word uses it day by day they had servants of plenty they ate the finest foods daily and all the time that literal picture is used to help us see that we should ever remember and on the day of judgment it'll not be our money that gets us into heaven can we not see so powerfully that in verse 17, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. That reminds us of Zephaniah 1 verse 18 in the Old Testament where yet one more time God told Israel, your money won't save you from, from Babylon, nor will it save you from Assyria. To be remembered certainly is the fact that we are to be good stewards of those funds and monies we have But on the day of judgment, we'll be judged by how we use them, not by the amount we've accumulated. To be noted, of course, is the third cry, beginning in verses 18 and following. Here it's the shipmasters, those mariners on the sea who brought things to Rome. And oh, how rich they became because Rome had much imported. Doesn't that help us see also the great lesson? that you and I should ever remember that the business in which we transact, those things that help us day by day to see the course of our life, should ever be dealing in matters that are fair and noble and honest, not in things that trade in the devil's wares. For if we trade with him, we certainly will reap the same reward, which as we will remember from Matthew 25, is none other than that place of torment awaiting all of he as well as his angels. As the chapter races to its conclusion, we do notice in verse number 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven. We might easily recall that there was a time many places earlier when there was petition for revenge or avengement, shall we say. Those martyrs that were beneath the altar in Revelation 6, notice that we are close to the time of seeing God's full answer to what they had requested. That brings us, if you will, to the brevity and swiftness of the judgment to be seen again in verses 10, 17, and 19. Three times, one hour is listed. May we take that to heart and see that the time of the Lord's second coming is not going to be given to us in great signs and advancement. We are told, in fact, in the book of Matthew, there will be no signs of that occasion. Jesus even said himself in Mark 13, 32 that... The angels nor even the sun knows the occurrence of that day. May we see then that we cannot use prophecy to figure out the hour and the day and the year for when the Lord will return. We don't know that, but we do know it will be quick. We do know that the time will be a very sudden occurrence. And isn't it true that that takes us to the last few verses of the chapter? Revelation 18 verses 21 to 24. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride should be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all that were slain upon the earth. The totality of judgment upon Babylon. No doubt, as we just read those verses, one of the most clearly and easily seen facts to be occurring in it was the very scene of no more at all. How many things would no more occur? Doesn't that remind us of the greatness of that no more? For after all, when something occurs no more, that means the fullness of that characterization has changed completely. Life would no more go on as it was. Again, physically, Babylon was destroyed. That ancient Roman Empire fell, and it has not risen physically again. It was to be no more. But as we've also noted, this picture is far grander when it would seem than that. For after all, this no more reminds us of what we shall read again in Revelation 21. Not many chapters hence. There it shall be positive in many ways. Here it's greatly negative. For when the righteous, in fact, enter their beautiful and golden home in heaven, there will be a lot of things that will be no more. Tears, death, crying, pain, curses. Notice those are all the grand things that will be happy that shall be no more. Here in regard to the judgment on Babylon, he says all those things you've enjoyed, all this lifestyle you've come to appreciate once I've destroyed it, God says, no more. There will be no more fun and laughter. Those things that have described your day-by-day characterization of being apart from me. There's, of course, in many ways a great sadness in those verses when we think about the vastness of those who are apart from the Heavenly Father. For at the end of verse 23, "...by thy sorceries were all nations deceived." So many individuals in our world who have failed to bow before God, to appreciate His truth, to humbly submit to His commandments, and as such they have cataloged themselves among those who are offensive to God, in the sense that they have not relied on the saving blood of his son. They haven't obeyed in truth. And thus, just as physical Babylon was destroyed, so too shall they be. And perhaps in one final note, have we not seen in the fullness of these 24 verses the greatness and severity of God's judgment on the harlot, that whore that we saw again in chapter 17? Might we notice, interestingly, as we draw our lesson to its conclusion, the greatness of how important it is to understand God's truth. Physical Babylon, of course, has long since now passed from physical existence upon this earth, but oh, how greatly that that religious Babylon has continued and still deceives multiplied thousands. In that deception, all the sorceries thereof have misled so many Verse 24 concludes it again so aptly. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. As we conclude our lesson this evening, could we not note Romans 11 verse 22. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fail severity but toward thee goodness if thou continue in his goodness. Have you continued in His goodness and thus separated yourself from the babbling of this world? The things that would cause you to be cataloged amongst those that are lost? It would be fair to say that given the terror to be seen in these passages, we should with haste and with immediacy bring ourselves into full obedience to the commandments of God. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 10 verse 31. This very night, Are you a faithful member of the Lord's body? Revelation 18 tells us that God on the one hand is a God of great love as He urges those that are His people to quickly exit Babylon. For I'm about to pour my plagues on it. If you and I find ourselves in the Babylon of this world, we should exit at once so that we can be in a position to be safe from the plagues He's going to pour out on those that are not His children. If you've never been baptized into His fold and family tonight, Believe in Jesus as a Son of God. Confess His master's name as the Son of God. Once you have repented and made that great confession, we'll be happy to aid you in your baptism. He, at that point, will add you to His church, His family. If you have done that at one point in your life and for some reason have not been faithful to that calling, come back to that first love even this very night. We, according to the Scriptures, would be more than honored to pray on your behalf that God would look deeply into your heart of repentance and indeed would forgive you of those things as you confess them to Him. Tonight, as we would look forward to that opportunity, we would only ask that you let us understand and know that by making a brief statement to us so that we can pray with you and for you. James 5.16 urges us to confess our faults and, on that account, to pray one for another. Would you let us know that even while together we stand and sing, if that's the need in your life.